Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our Friday webinar. Uh, we are just giving everyone a few moments to join this virtual room with us. So thank you for being here. These last Fridays of every month, the Center for Sustainable Healthcare Quality and Equity here at the National Minority Quality Forum puts on our Champions for Total Health webinars. And so we are so happy that you've registered and that you're joining us to learn more about heart disease, diabetes, and vaccines. I will give our attendees about 30 more seconds and then we can get started. All right, so again, welcome to our webinar, Champions for Total Health, Heart Disease, Diabetes, and Vaccinations. So really quickly, if you are new here, if you haven't joined us for one of these Friday webinars before, we really, really wanted to make sure that we could serve our communities in a way that would go beyond vaccinations and incorporate the intersections of total health. Every single month, there is a different chronic illness that we are focusing on. And as you can see this month, we are focusing on two, heart disease and diabetes, because they are often linked, which you will hear about pretty soon. So I am Kristen Hobbs. I am the Director of Quality Improvement and Equity at the National Minority Quality Forums, SHC. So a couple of webinar notes before we get started. This is a webinar, so you are in listen-only mode and your videos are turned off. We ask that you put all of your questions in the Q&A box so that we can monitor that for the Q&A portion. Now, our chat is available, so please, please, please feel free to network, tell us where you're from, make comments, and especially during our interactive portion, you can answer our open-ended questions about the microsite that we're developing for these chronic illnesses in the chat. Again, please put all your questions in the Q&A box though, because that's where we will be monitoring for Q&A. Really quickly, our agenda. So I will give you a quick rundown of who we are at NMQF and SHC. We'll talk about diabetes and heart disease, vaccine data, vaccine recommendations, and some patient and patient advocate perspectives with our esteemed panelists. And then we will go into our interactive portion where you will be invited to give us feedback on the cultural relevancy, the content, and the linguistic appropriateness of the microsite we're developing. 
And hopefully, if there is enough time, we will have a Q&A portion for our panelists and me if you have any questions as well. So NMQF, uh, NMQF was started in 1998 by Dr. Carrie, Gary Puckran, um, and our goal is to reduce patient risk as an avenue for advancing health equity. And here at SHC, we do that through quality improvement in clinical education and public health interventions. So we have our uh, small but mighty team here who is growing and we are so excited to have uh, everyone join us and do this work together. So our president is Dr. Laura Lee Hall. Um, our chief medical officer is Dr. Saria Sakashio. You know me, our quality improvement equity project manager is Chinny. She will be helping me with the interactive portion and the Q&A today um, in the background. And then we just onboarded our new quality improvement and equity project assistant, Ms. Leslie Zuniga. And now I would like to turn it over to our very first panelist, Dr. Christopher Holliday, who is the director of the Division of Diabetes Translation, U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I'm going to stop sharing so that you can share your screen. Welcome, Dr. Holliday. Thank you, Kristen. Let me just grab the presentation here. It's a pleasure to be with you all today. Just want to make sure that you can see my screen. How's that? All right. So again, thank you, everyone. It is my pleasure to be with you today and to be able to just tell you a little bit about the Division of Diabetes Translation, as well as some of the, the topic areas that I think are top of mind, how that relates to COVID, how it relates to chronic disease um, in general, specifically heart disease. Um, thank you for having me. It's actually a, a, an esteemed pleasure to be part of an NMQF webinar. I've been a, a fan and a participant in NMQF for many years. And now that I'm with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, I'm, I'm both honored and humbled to be, to be back. So let's kind of start off with diabetes as a chronic condition that uh, affects many parts of our lives. Um, it's really about how it affects how our body turns food into energy. If you have diabetes, your, your, body, your body either doesn't make enough insulin or can't make use of the insulin that it produces as well as it should. Um, when there isn't enough insulin or cells to stop responding to insulin, too much blood sugar stays in your bloodstream. And diabetes obviously presents therefore a significant public health challenge for, for us all. There are more than 37 million Americans who have diabetes. Of these, roughly 18% are Hispanic adults, 15% are non-Hispanic adults, non-Hispanic Black adults, and 7% are non-Hispanic Asian adults. And then lurking just beneath the surface is another 96 million adults with prediabetes, a condition that puts them at high risk of progressing to type 2 diabetes and developing other serious health conditions, um, including um, heart disease, stroke, et cetera. And 15% of these adults are Hispanic, 13% um, are non-Hispanic Black, and 6% are non-Hispanic Asian. And unfortunately, only about 81% of these people with prediabetes, um, they don't know they have the condition. It's largely asymptomatic. 
Our surveillance tells us that Hispanic and non-Hispanic Black and American Indian Alaska Native adults bear a higher burden of diabetes than people from other races and ethnicities. As you can see in the graphic, the prevalence rates of diagnosed diabetes among these populations are, are greater than 10% compared to non-Hispanic, white, and Asian populations. Uh, additionally, Hispanic, Black, and American Indian Alaska Native adults die from diabetes at higher rates than their non-Hispanic white counterparts. Um, American Indian and Alaska Native populations are acutely impacted by diabetes. Not only is their diabetes prevalence highest among impacted groups, but they are two and a half times more likely to die from diabetes than non-Hispanic white populations. I think when we talk about this work, and for those who are in attendance here, we've all heard the term, the social determinants of health, or SDOH. And these are those non-medical factors that influence health outcomes and the conditions in which people are, are born, grow, work, live, and age, and the wider set of forces and systems shaping the conditions of daily life. And these forces can be anything from racism to climate and systems that include economic policies. And, and um, they, they actually help us help develop agendas and social norms and social policies and social systems that can advantage one group and disadvantage another. And so up to 80% of health outcomes can be attributable to the social determinants of health. Um, these adverse social determinants include food insecurity, housing instability, unemployment, and other unmet health-related social needs, often contributing to negative health outcomes, including an increased risk for diabetes, which we're talking about today, but also hypertension and heart disease. And these disparities in diabetes specifically um, around prevalence also exist by education level, income level, and geography. For example, the lower the education level, the higher the diabetes prevalence. In adults with diabetes, lower education levels are associated with up to four times higher risk of mortality. Data also show that adults with family income below the federal poverty level had the highest prevalence of overall um, diabetes, and for both men and women, as demonstrated on, on this slide. Diabetes also clusters around rural counties, where diabetes is 38% higher than in counties outside of these areas. So I think our charge is pretty clear, but understanding the influence of those social and structural determinants of health on diabetes burden is critical when striving to achieve health equity and optimal health for all. So let's talk a little bit about the complications of poorly managed diabetes. As we know, diabetes can reduce quality of life and its complications can cause very serious health problems over time, particularly when it's poorly managed. Diabetes is a risk factor for stroke, the number one cause of blindness. Diabetic retinopathy and glaucoma are a huge contributor um, of vision issues. Um, it is a massive contributor to heart attack and heart disease due to micro and macrovascular complications. It's the number one cause of kidney disease and kidney failure and the number one cause of amputation. People with diabetes may also present with other risk factors like smoking or physical inactivity that are known to increase risk of developing serious macrovascular and microvascular complications, uh, particularly for those that are older and later in life. Um, some complications are more relevant in racial and ethnic minority groups than among non-Hispanic white people. For instance, uh, recent research indicates that African-American and 
American Indian Alaska Native individuals are at an increased risk of amputation due to diabetes complication. And 23% of non-Hispanic Black adults have moderate to severe chronic kidney disease compared to 17% of Hispanic white and non-Hispanic white and 8% of Hispanic adults. So let's go specifically to diabetes and heart disease. As I mentioned earlier, heart disease is a diabetes complication. And these two conditions often go hand in hand. Heart disease includes several kinds of problems that affect your heart. The most common type of heart disease is coronary artery disease, which can lead to hardening of the arteries and decreased blood flow. Decreased blood flow, in turn, um, to the heart can cause heart attack, and decreased blood flow to the brain can cause stroke. Uh, people with diabetes are twice as likely to have heart disease or a stroke than someone who doesn't have diabetes and at a younger age, and I think that's important to underscore. Um, Black or African-American individuals are twice as likely as non-Hispanic white individuals to die of heart disease and 50% more likely to have hypertension and or diabetes. The longer you have diabetes, I think it's important for the audience to know the more likely you are to have heart disease. Um, finally, people with diabetes are also more likely to have other conditions that raise the risk of heart disease, including high blood pressure, uh, too much LDL cholesterol, and high triglycerides. So let's talk a little bit about CDC's diabetes, pre diabetes prevention and management efforts. And given all the information I've shared thus far, it's important to highlight some of CDC's um, efforts in this space to reduce the burden of diabetes, diabetes-related disparities, and complications. So CDC continues to support its two key programmatic priorities for diabetes prevention and diabetes management. And the National Diabetes Prevention Program and Diabetes Self-Management Education and Support Services are key among those efforts. So I'll first talk about the National Diabetes Prevention Program or the National DPP. So in response to all of the rising concerns that I've just illuminated around type two diabetes, the growing numbers of people with prediabetes, that's the, the 96 million I mentioned at the top of, of, of my talk, and the strength of, of supporting evidence that shows that we can get our arms around this, Congress actually authorized CDC to establish the national DPP back in 2010. And the national DPP is, is essentially a, a, a public-private partnership of organizations that are really working to build a national delivery system for an evidence-based lifestyle change program. And this is for adults age 18 and older with prediabetes to, to essentially prevent their, their progression to type 2 diabetes or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. And the National DPP Lifestyle Change Program is founded on the original science, the Diabetes Prevention Program Research Study. And this study essentially showed that um, with modest lifestyle changes, losing about 5 to 7% of your body weight, eating better, moving more, can reduce the risk of developing type 2 diabetes by as much as 58% for the average adult and as much as 71% for people over the age of 60. So it's extremely um, strong evidence of helping people to prevent their progression of type 2 diabetes or, or delay it altogether. And the program can lower, of course, the risk of heart attack or stroke to improve overall health because your diabetes is under control or you prevent it progressing to type 2 diabetes. 
And so CDC funds cooperative agreements to expand the national DPP to underserved areas and populations underrepresented in, in the program relative, relative to their risk of, of diabetes. So looking at those people in the diabetes belt, um, the low income populations, the minority populations that I uh, and, the, and the persons of color that I outlined earlier are all um, part of where we have particular focus. And this includes also Medicare beneficiaries, men, um, African-American, Asian-American, Hispanic, American Indians, Alaskan Native, Pacific Islanders, et cetera. Um, and also people who have a higher risk of, of visual and physical disability. Um, currently, CDC is funding 30 tribes and tribal organizations to reduce the rates that are happening among those populations. Uh, we are also having cooperative agreements to go to the higher burden areas of our country. In fact, we just put out um, a forecast of two notice of funding opportunities that I encourage the audience to, to go and, and look forward to see if, if they have um, the capability to apply for some of these critical dollars and help um, their respective communities to curb the devastation of diabetes. Now that's diabetes prevention, but for people with diabetes who currently are, are diagnosed with diabetes, CDC does help um, by having developed resources and tools to assist with the development, promotion, and implementation, and of course, sustainability of diabetes self-management, education, and support services, or we tend to say DSMES. And these services are critical to those who have diabetes to prevent or delay serious health complications like amputations, chronic kidney disease, um, and heart attack and stroke, as, as was mentioned earlier, including vision. Um, CD CDC released a DSMES toolkit to increase the use of DSMES services among people with diabetes and to promote healthcare provider referrals. So we want to make sure that more physicians know about these programs and are referring their patients with diabetes to get this uh, ability to self-manage and to manage their, their diabetes better. Um, CDC also released a practice-based guidance for implementing and evaluating these programs. Um, during COVID-19, which is really going to be a, a, a underpinning of all of the, the information you'll hear today, CDC worked with state health departments to expand the use of telehealth and texting and video chats with diabetes care and education specialists. And these efforts really helped to get diabetes management services um, to much needed, um, to people who really needed them um, when in-person visits weren't really possible. And advances in telehealth technologies such as smartphone apps and computers and texts and videos uh, really can be used to deliver these services equally with equal um, quality and equal effect. And so we're we're happy to be able to use these platforms um, when there's limited in-person options and other barriers to accessing services. So this is just a small sample of the Division of Diabetes Translations work at CDC towards ending the diabetes epidemic. Really appreciate the time. Thank you again for the opportunity, and I'm happy to answer questions when we get to that portion. Thank you, Dr. Holliday. That was extremely, extremely valuable information, um, and we appreciate you joining us today. So now I would like to kick it to Dr. Yabo Vaisalo, who is a pediatrician and an immunization consultant for the Association of Immunization Managers. Dr. Vaisalo. Thank you so much, Kristen. 
and NMQF and also aim for this opportunity. Thanks to Dr. Holliday for really just giving us this breadth of knowledge about diabetes and thank you for the audience. Um, my role today is to really try to discuss the importance of vaccination and preventing diseases that can seriously affect people with chronic heart disease and diabetes. These illnesses like COVID, flu, pneumococcal disease, these diseases can make your underlying medical conditions such as diabetes or heart disease unstable, may cause you to have a flare up or land you in the hospital. So we'll begin our discussion with looking at the recommended vaccine schedule for adults. It is published by the CDC every year. The recommended vaccines are for all adults um, 19 years and older, and adults with heart disease and diabetes are recommended to receive all of these routine vaccinations. Just a quick overview of this schedule, um, just letting you know that the um, light pink are for everyone who meets the age requirement, um, the dark pink or brown, um, adults with particular risk factor, um, gray, no recommendation. So we can move on to the schedule, which is specifically recommended, as you can see highlighted there for people with heart or lung disease and diabetes across the top columns. And that's where we want to kind of focus our attention. So the colors you may be seeing are probably slightly different from the ones I described, but all the people who you see in yellow are recommended to get these vaccines that are shown on the left. So for example, IIV stands for flu vaccine, Tdap for tetanus and whooping cough vaccine, MMR for measles, mumps, and rubella if you're not already vaccinated and you're probably wondering, do I still need a measles vaccine? Unfortunately, we're finding cases of measles in people who were not previously vaccinated and now are coming into contact with measles. So yes, it really depends on whether or not you've been vaccinated in the past or not. It's also recommended that you receive chickenpox vaccine if you've never had the chickenpox. Um, the Zoster vaccine to prevent shingles, HPV vaccine, pneumococcal vaccine, which can cause pneumococcal disease such as pneumonia, um, infection of your bloodstream called bacteremia or sepsis, which can be very, very devastating if you have heart disease or diabetes. So again, these are all the um, vaccines. We'll specifically turn our attention now to flu and COVID vaccines. So when we discuss COVID vaccines, where are we now um, as a nation? Where are we now currently? Um, we know that this is a table that we get from the CDC, which is updated weekly. And it shows the proportion of people in various racial and ethnic communities who are fully vaccinated, meaning that they completed their initial doses, but not the booster. So for example, if we look at the um, darker blue for the African-American population, um, we see that the gap is starting to close. We are starting to see the percentage of African-American, Hispanic adults, very similar to their white counterparts who are being fully vaccinated. But that's not the full story. We're doing great with um, initial vaccination, but not as great with booster vaccinations. So when we look at booster vaccinations, um, what we can glean from this chart, um, if you look on the yellow section, these are the percentage of people in each racial or ethnic group who have not yet received a booster dose, whereas the green shows those who have received a booster dose. So for example, if you look at the um, black population, you'll see that about 44% of us have received a booster dose. Um, and these are in people ages five years and older, but 56% have not. 
and very similar for the Hispanic population. Um, remember in the US, people five years and older are now eligible for a booster dose anywhere from four to five months after completing their primary vaccine series. And that depends on which vaccine they began with. Thank you, um, Kristen. So now we'll turn our um, attention to flu vaccine data. And we also wanna point out the differences by race in flu vaccination rates in adults. And what these maps are showing us, sorry about that. Um, what the maps are showing us of, for the 2020 to 2021 season. And we're looking at this by the percentage of the population vaccinated by race or ethnicity during that season. And that's the last um, flu season. Note that the darkest green are the states where over 60% of that population received their flu vaccination. The lightest green um, where 42% or so have received their vaccination. So we see that in the white population, more of the states are in that darkest blue or green color, whereas you see it less so in the um, Hispanic communities and even less so in the black population. But this is something that has um, been apparent for decades and the COVID-19 pandemic has shared more light on these disparities. Um, for some of the same reasons that black adults early in the pandemic were onshore of the COVID-19 vaccine, we continue to see these long-standing reasons why Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous American adults are not receiving the flu vaccine at the same rate as their um, white counterparts. And until structural racism, racism in healthcare is acknowledged and addressed with an open mind, as well as attention placed on improving some of those social determinants of health, access to healthcare, um, making exposures less because of where you live, work, and play, and also improvement in socioeconomic status will continue, unfortunately, to see these disparities. So let's focus a little bit on flu vaccines and talk about um, the flu vaccines, the what's called the ACIP, which is a committee that works along with the CDC. Um, what they do is basically look at vaccine recommendations and decide who should get a vaccine, who should not based on indications in the population, looking at safety of the vaccine, how effective the vaccine is. They've come up with recommendations for this season. Um, we do have different types of flu vaccines available. The one you're probably most familiar with is the flu shot, and it comes in different forms. There's a standard dose, which is for people ages six months and older, a high dose, which contains four times as much antigen or the protein. We'll talk about that in a minute. And that's for adults 65 years and older. There's an adjuvanted vaccine, meaning it has a boosting effect in it to make the vaccine work faster. And then there are egg-free formulations. There's also the nasal spray, which probably many people wish they can take, but is really only recommended for healthy people ages two through 49 years. It is not recommended for people with certain medical conditions, a weakened immune system or pregnant people. And the ACIP recommended for this season that everyone six months of age and older without a contraindication should continue to receive their annual flu vaccine. For people who are 65 years and older, is preferred that they receive one of those higher dose or adjuvanted flu vaccines. And why is that? Um, it's really because people who um, are 65 years and older are at increased risk of severe complications from flu disease. They're more likely to be hospitalized or die compared with younger persons. And so we want a vaccine that's gonna be more effective in this population. So hence the preference. 
And so um, we want to make sure that people who are, again, in this age group receive the higher dose flu vaccines. But if none of these formulations are available, then, of course, vaccinate with what you have available. Also, all the um, vaccines for the upcoming season will be four strain. Um, in the past, we've had vaccines that only had three strains of the virus and this year, four strains. And remember when I talk about vaccine having the virus, we're talking about a killed or weakened piece of the virus. We're not putting the virus itself into the vaccine. It will not cause disease, but your body will see it as something foreign and develop what we call antibodies or fighting cells to fight off what it thinks is the real infection. And it stores it in its memory, these fighting cells, these antibodies. So in the future, when you do come in contact with the actual flu germ, you are protected and you can go in with fighting gloves on and um, overcome that. So that's why, again, we also need a flu shot every year um, because these strains may change. The way scientists determine what strains go into a particular flu vaccine every year is based on what the flu viruses that are circulating around the world. Typically, the southern part of the world, like Australia and South Africa, have their flu seasons earlier than we do in North America. All of this helps scientists predict which flu viruses should be used in making the vaccine for the upcoming season. Most of the time, it's a pretty good match. So lastly, I think we have time to talk about one misconception, um, just in the interest of time, and we can swing back to these at the end if there are questions. But this is what I hear in my community. You may be hearing the same. Um, some of the things I hear, every time I get the flu shot, I get sick. Remember, it is not the actual flu virus that goes into making the vaccine. A piece of the virus which has been killed or weakened enough so that it will not cause disease is placed into the vaccine, but your body will see it as something that should not be there. And so when you vaccinate someone with it and once your body sees it, again, it makes these antibodies and stores them. And um, you're prepared when you do come in contact, unfortunately with the actual germ, you're now prepared to fight it. During that process of getting the shot and making antibodies, your immune system causes you to have symptoms like fever, chills, fatigue, or headache. So it may seem as if you're sick, but you're actually not. Um, you're basically just fighting off what you think is the germ. So with that, I will stop there and turn over to Kristen. Thank you, Kristen. You're welcome. Thank you, Dr. Baisolo. I really appreciate your in-depth uh, talking about all the vaccines that patients living with heart disease and diabetes need to get, um, especially the annual flu and COVID-19 and COVID-19 boosters. So now I will kick it over to Tiara Smith, who is the director of Beyond Type 2, which is a part of Beyond Type 1, who will give us um, a little bit of her story as a patient and patient advocate who uh, really believes in vaccination. Thank you, Kristen. Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, depending on where you are. I'm on the West Coast, so it's still morning here. Uh, my name is Tiara Smith, and as Kristen said, I'm the director of Beyond Type 2, where we provide resources for people impacted by type 2 diabetes. And the language there is intentional because type 2 diabetes is such a uh, public health issue. We know that it takes more than just a person living with diabetes to be able to manage it effectively. So we like to think of it as a general community-based um, initiative where any person who comes in contact with someone with diabetes can be helpful to helping someone manage it um, a little bit better. I have diabetes myself. I was misdiagnosed with type 2 diabetes um, and then later found out that I have type 1. Um, however, 
this has helped empower me to become an even better patient advocate for people who have type two, type one um, alike. And that's because there's a lot of mis misconceptions about what, about what it means to live with diabetes. Um, and I feel like as a, as a patient advocate, it's um, my duty to provide as many resources and also use my experience to help people um, uh, find the resources they need and also being able to do whatever they can to make sure that they feel empowered to, um, to speak out about their experiences as well. However, lately when it comes to uh, vaccines, there's been a lot of discussions within the diabetes community, especially with COVID, on, um, on, on the safety of, of vaccines, as well as um, other flu shots and other vaccines that we need to make sure that we are not putting ourselves at risk for other health outcomes. Um, as mentioned earlier, when you have diabetes, you are at risk for uh, other health issues, including heart disease, um, blindness, um, amputation, and all of those other complications. So it's very important for um, patient advocates and patient advocacy organizations to uh, provide resources and information and education on why it's important to, communi to communicate with your healthcare provider. Um, within the diabetes community, we are very <clears throat> adamant about sharing our own experiences with the healthcare providers and some tips on how to uh, improve uh, communication and um, inpatient empowerment so that way you can make sure that your uh, appointments are as productive as possible. And I'll share my experience with mine, especially when it comes to getting vaccinated. So um, in the time of COVID, um, because, um, because of diabetes, that meant I was high risk of, of um, severe uh, outcomes. And this is before the vaccinations came along. Um, so I was relegated to just uh, speaking with my healthcare providers through our healthcare portal, which made it a lot easier and safer for me to be able to maintain um, some quality of care uh, without having to leave my house. And even to this day, that's still the primary way that we communicate. Um, I think now it's been a lot easier to communicate with my healthcare provider because they're able to send me messages that are easy for me to receive on when it's time to get vaccinated, whether, whether it's the flu shot, or whether it's getting um, the, at least the first COVID shot and, and then later on the booster. And using that experience um, has helped me being able to share that with other people, especially other people with diabetes who are very nervous about leaving their homes and providing those tips to, hey, see if your provider has a way for you to communicate, whether it's via Zoom or via another way uh, where you don't have to leave your home. and. Um, as a person of color, I find that this is especially even more important simply because um, there, there's been a lot of uh, vaccine hesitancy. And I feel like as a patient advocate, it's really important to, to lead by example um, and share your positive experiences because your positive experiences do go a long way to help someone else. Um, one thing that we run into a lot in the diabetes community is um, the power of storytelling. And it is very uh, integral to our care and, and how we communicate with others um, that our experiences are used to empower people to take some action. And there are times when um, some patients don't necessarily feel comfortable going to their healthcare providers um, until they see someone else doing the same. So 
part of, like I said, part of patient advocacy in my role is to make sure that my experience is there to help someone else because it is because it is integral to our daily diabetes management and it's so important when um, we're trying to get the word out on the importance of um, vaccinations and as well as like other health issues um, such as heart disease. Um, so that is my story and I am very privileged to be here and I am um, so excited to continue um, the work in patient advocacy for people with diabetes type one um, and also especially type two and prediabetes as well. Wonderful, thank you so much, Tiara. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Um, so now I will kick it to our second patient advocate, Deacon Sunsaray Brown. Um, she will be speaking to being a patient advocate for both heart disease and diabetes. Welcome, Deacon Brown. Good afternoon to everyone. I would just like to start off by saying that I do have an aunt who has type 2 diabetes. I have a mother who has hypertension, and I've had a grandmother that passed away due to hypertension. Um, and in our community, in area of 19143, it has been linked to an enormous rate of hospitalization and deaths due to hypertension, heart disease, and diabetes. And at my church, um, under the pastor, uh, Reverend Eric J. Good, we have um, formulated a faith-based health and wellness initiative, and we wanted to facilitate a better quality of life um, for healthier people in mind, body, and soul. And so our program seeks to introduce healthier menu options, incorporate workout and self-care, and we seek to combat the increasing amount of hypertension and heart disease that affects our church and in our community. And just to let everybody know that it is not a death sentence, that not only can we change our mindset, but we can also we need to change our way of life. So um, incorporating better, um, better meal preparation, um, also, um, our goal is uh, our scripture at the church for this program is that uh, John 10, 10, I come that that might have life and have it more abundant. So we have to have a healthier life for the total man and the best form of wealth is good health. And so in doing that, um, we find that um, in our area uh, and especially in our of African-Americans, they are more trustworthy of a faith-based community that will back up vaccinations, that will back up for hypertension. And so we're uh, gathering a workshop. Um, it's called Season Fitness. Um, and that is fitness designed for seniors and limited mobility patients. Um, we're also going to uh, facilitate a vaccination clinic. And we're going to do something called Healthy Eating, quick five-minute meal prep. Um, that is safe, effective, and easy for not only senior adults, but for working adults and parents on the go. Um, Self-care options and something called unsweetened goodness. And unsweetened goodness is sweet options for those who suffer with diabetes. Um, you can have um, sweets, but it doesn't necessarily have to have processed sugar. So I am excited. Um, I'm very thankful for this panel. I'm very thankful for this opportunity, and I look forward to much more collaboration. So thank you. 
Wonderful. Thank you, Deacon Brown. That was beautiful. And thank you for sharing your story as a caregiver and patient advocate. All righty. So now we will move into our interactive portion. So this is where you will get to preview our microsite that goes along with this particular webinar and then give us feedback. Um, so this is an example of one of the microsites that we've had in the past for hypertension and vaccines, but I'm going to switch sharing my screen so that you can see the first draft of the heart disease, um, diabetes, and vaccines microsite. Here we go. So all of our microsites really have um, the function of providing digestible, culturally relevant, culturally appropriate information to our audiences. And from these microsites, we will also be developing flyers in both English and Spanish such that you can uh, print them out and disseminate them amongst your communities. Um, so this is really the general layout and the general uh, sections that we usually have. Of course, every single illness has nuances, so it may look slightly different, but this is the long and short of it. So first things first, we want to ground our discussion in some definitions. What is heart disease? What is diabetes? And so we have a section for that. And then making sure that everyone understands the link between heart disease and diabetes and what those risk factors are and how you can go about mitigating your risk for both of the chronic illness, um, illnesses as prevention um, and as management tactics. And then we wanna make sure um, that everyone knows there are inequities in heart disease and diabetes. Uh, Dr. Holliday did a really good job of talking about these inequities and what those drivers are. And we have some uh, a chart and a table for everyone to digest. And then we go straight into the intersection of vaccinations. So heart disease and COVID-19, heart disease and flu, diabetes and COVID-19, diabetes and flu, um, and then uh, both chronic illnesses and adult vaccinations. Dr. Vaisalo did a wonderful job of talking about all the adult vaccinations that are specific to everyone, and then those adult vaccinations that are specific to patients living with diabetes and or heart disease or other cardiovascular diseases. So we have all of that information available for you here. And then we have resources. So. This one is um, a little bit light on the resources just because the CDC Million Hearts campaign, Live by the Beat, Heart Healthy Steps, Beyond Type 2, um, those websites have a plethora of resources within them. So instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, we decided to point you to these very valuable websites and their resources. Um, and then we will invite either uh, Tiara or and or Dr. Uh, or excuse me, Deacon Brown to provide a patient perspective video that will be housed on our website. And then the recording of today's webinar will also be housed on our website in perpetuity and on YouTube on the NMQF YouTube page. Um, and then here are our sources for all of our information. And so that's how we uh, engage and that's how we hope that you will give us feedback or that's what we hope you will give us feedback on here in just a second. So I'm going to switch to our Jamboard so that we can talk feedback. So um, the very first question is actually a poll. Um, so we should see that poll populating soon. 
If you are a panelist, please feel free to engage with the poll as well. Um, we are looking for feedback from everyone. So this very first question, who would you share a microsite with on um, uh, heart disease, diabetes, and vaccinations? Would you share it with colleagues, only family, friends, patients, your social media audience, or any form um, of all of those? So I'll give you a few seconds to answer and really think about this in the context of, is this information easy to digest or do I think it would be? Um, and do I think it would be appealing to people to want to know this information? And do I have an audience for that in these various um, population groups, if you will, I guess, in, in your life? So I will give everyone a few more seconds. We are over 50% participation. All righty, I think the responsive has slowed. So I'm gonna go ahead and end the poll and share the results. Um, again, my colleague Jenny will be taking notes on our Jamboard. So what we do with these uh, Jamboard slides is we take all of the information that you give us and then we um, populate it into the microsite and revise the microsite based on that information. So 74% um, of you said that you would share it with your colleagues and family and friends, 41 with your patients and 52 with your social media audience. So that is awesome. All right. Moving on to the next question. So I know you got a quick overview of the microsite, but do you notice any vital information that might be missing from the, the, the microsite that should be included? I'll be monitoring the chat. So please go, Chinny and I will be monitoring the chat. So please go ahead and put your um, feedback there. Any information that we're missing that you think we should include, if we should have a section on something that's not there or um, we should tweak the information. I'll give everyone a few more seconds in the interest of time. Info on other vaccines sequencing um, disease despite vaccination. Absolutely, we'll take notes on that. The shingle shot. Awesome, yeah, that should be in the CDC vaccination schedule, uh, but we'll definitely be sure to highlight it on that table. All right, so we're gonna move on to the next question. Um, and myths. So, Jenny, please add the myths section. We definitely will do that. I think Dr. Yabo um, really put together a very nice graphic when it comes to myths for flu vaccines, so we can do that for the others as well. All right. What additional challenges 
from vaccine preventable diseases exists for patients living with heart disease and diabetes. So we know that um, individuals uh, living with these chronic illnesses already have the challenge of complications um, from these vaccine preventable diseases, but what additional challenges outside of maybe even health outcomes? Is there a social aspect that they have to think about? everyone a few moments or a few more seconds in the interest of time and thank you guys for the additional comments on the previous question we'll be sure to get that uh, so additional challenges transportation for many in the south where public transportation is poor absolutely i live in texas public transportation is a misnomer here um, it's just transportation it's not widely available to the public and so that can easily be a hindrance for someone living with chronic illnesses who are trying to get their vaccinations and who are simply just trying to managing their, uh, manage their diseases. Um, what about free clinics uninsured and undocumented? Absolutely. Um, other challenges, they are disproportionately affected by others not getting vaccinated. So other people choosing not to take risk mitigation measures puts the most vulnerable amongst us at risk for complications. Co-pays, yes, absolutely. All right, so Chenny's gonna keep adding to this particular Jamboard slide um, while I move on to the next question for you to think about. So we talk about all these risk mitigation measures. So in addition to good hand hygiene, masking, physical and social distancing, what additional risk mitigation measures can patients living with heart disease and diabetes take to reduce the risk of contracting an infectious disease? What would you recommend? Um, Dr. Holliday notes that some illnesses like influenza can raise your blood glucose to dangerously high levels. People with diabetes have higher rates of hepatitis B and, than the rest of the population. And people with diabetes are at increased risk for death from pneumonia, a lung infection, bacteremia, a blood infection, and meningitis infection of the lining of the brain and spinal cord. Um, those are really, really big challenges, I think, that we probably should highlight on the microsite. So thank you, Dr. Holliday. Um, set up vaccine locations in low-income apartment communities. That is a really, really good idea, Phyllis. Good sleep and nutrition, risk mitigation, yes. Um, no one can be well on less sleep. Anything else? Seeing vaccines as a way to protect your loved ones from harm, it's a selfless act. Thank you so much, Tiara. It really is a selfless act. And we all need everyone. 
working with a care team to effectively manage cardiovascular disease, especially keeping blood glucose in range to reduce risk of severe infection. Uh, wearing masks, absolutely, that masking aspect here. Related to COVID-19, staying up to date with COVID-19 vaccines, getting primary series and booster, and following preventive measures for COVID-19 are important. This is especially important if you are older or have severe health conditions like diabetes or heart disease, or if you have comorbidities, more than one health condition. Thank you, Dr. Holliday. Thank you for expounding upon that. All right, we've got one more. So Chinny, um, oh, financial help or improved access to diabetes medications, tools for when people do get sick. Thank you, Tiara. You may need to test more often. Absolutely, absolutely. So Chinny, I'm gonna let you keep populating this slide so we can get to our last question, um, just so we have time for Q&A. How can our team improve the cultural appropriateness of this microsite? Now, I know you didn't get a line-by-line -line reading of, of all the verbiage, um, but just from what you saw, what can we do to ensure that we're doing the right things by um, historically excluded communities with this information? I guess we did a pretty good job so far. <laughs> Accessibility features, absolutely accessibility is important. Perspectives from people with diabetes and heart diseases from various marginalized communities backgrounds on how being vaccinated has helped their quality of life. Absolutely, Tiara, thank you so much. And hopefully we can get a patient perspective from you. Translations of resources into different languages. Being mindful of the reading level of the content, absolutely, absolutely. Making it not scary and full of grim statistics. I have diabetes and wouldn't want to only read about the bad. As a diabetes advocate, I strive to give people hope. Amen, amen to that. <laughs> Cosine. Amen. Patient support groups, either online or in person. That would be great to add. We'll definitely do that. Okay, we have about six more minutes and um, I know that we have uh, a couple of pre-submitted questions. So what I'm gonna do is let Chenny keep working in the background with the chat. So if you have any more comments or suggestions or information that you want us to add or things that you think would make the microsite better, please feel free to do so. I am going to pivot to our um, Q&A section. So I'll ask the panelists to turn on their cameras if they can um, and we will dive right in. So 
Any recommendations to overcome vaccine hesitancy, particularly in the young male population with multiple chronic diseases, chronic kidney disease, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes mellitus, hypertension, as part of their health promotion and preventive medicine care plan? So that was a mouthful, but I'll let Dr. Holliday answer that one first. Yeah, so, so can, you can you repeat the question? I've got um, some yeah. background noise, I've missed it. Yes, absolutely. So basically, are there any recommendations to overcome vaccine hesitancy in the young male population who are living with multiple chronic illnesses as part of their health promotion and preventative medicine care plan? Yeah, I think, think Dr. Yabel could could add to this, but the I would just say it is important as we think about um, prevention uh, among any populations that it is uh, key to tailor communications that are culturally and linguistically appropriate to the group. So in this particular um, avenue or particular population, you're talking about young men specifically with other chronic illnesses. And so how do those types of patients, um, community members, young men get their information? Where do they get their information? How do you do it in a, in a culturally, linguistically appropriate way where they tend to obtain their information? So you may not, um, you may think about social media, you may think about um, smartphone usage, you may think about um, you know, places where these uh, young men would be. You would also wanna, of course, go through traditional channels like through the healthcare system and talking to providers. Um, obviously, you want to make sure that these messages are, messages are simple, that they're clear, and that they're actionable. And when you do this kind of in-depth um, segmenting of populations, it's really important that you hear from those types of populations that help inform these messages. So if I'm going to speak to this population, I want to hear from those who are in these spaces how they navigate, and then what are their issues so that you can better um, put out those messages in an appropriate frame. I don't know if Dr. Yamba wants to add to that. You did an awesome job, Dr. Holliday, and all I can add is that what we've learned um, from the COVID-19 pandemic and the work to increase vaccination rates are that those one-on-one -on -one conversations, as you alluded to, are key. Um, so don't assume that a big group setting, a Zoom meeting will get your answers across to the intended audience, but those one-on-one -on -one private conversations, it may have to happen several times, um, will also help. Thank you. Thank you both. I really appreciate that. And just as a note, um, Dr. Yabo has been answering a lot of the Q&A questions in the Q&A box, so please refer to that if you've asked a question. Um, and then for the funding opportunity, I copied and pasted Dr. Holliday's um, chat message into that uh, Q&A answer. Um, so our second question, are COVID-19 vaccinations, vaccinations appropriate for children as young as six months old? If so, what is the evidence? Dr. So this is a great question because for so many of us who have children, grandchildren, et cetera, want to make sure that we're giving our baby something that's actually going to work and something that's safe, right? And so the COVID-19 vaccines have been shown in clinical trials. There are two vaccines um, authorized for this age group, one by Pfizer and one by Moderna, and they're both authorized for ages six months and older, and they have been shown to be both safe and effective. Um, effectiveness, actually, um, we are seeing that in real-world studies. So, you know, in the beginning, is just clinical trials. They may have just a few kids that they vaccinate and see how well the vaccine 
office protection. But there's been some recent data of just a few days ago released that um, for the Pfizer vaccination in younger children under the age of five, so six months through four years, they're seeing about 70% efficacy, meaning that the vaccine does protect at least 70% of the children um, from getting very severe illness. Now, I'm going to couch all that by saying nothing is 100% effective, right? No medicine, no drug is going to give you 100% protection. So from the standpoint of clinicians, we feel good when we have a vaccine that shows at least 50 to 60% efficacy or protection. So when we see 70%, we're excited. And um, also a vaccine that is also safe. So hopefully that um, answers your question. I think so. Thank you. Um, and then what are your thoughts about the high miscarriage rate in the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccination trials? Um, I believe this is a little bit of misinformation, but I'll let Dr. Yabo answer. It is, and this was something that um, was brought forth through social media. Um, it is misinformation a few years um, back, and the Pfizer vaccine trials did not show an an increased amount of miscarriage. Actually, the miscarriage rate in all the vaccine trials was the same as what we call the background rate. Background rate means that if no one got a vaccine, how many times would you see miscarriage in pregnant people in the population? There's always a baseline. Each pregnancy has a risk. When the vaccines were given in the vaccine trial, they were not intentionally given to pregnant people. Some people became pregnant afterwards, but they did not see an increase in the miscarriage rate. So this was truly misinformation. Awesome. And then the last question, what structural or system changes are described? Um, that question is a little bit vague. So I think they're referring to the system changes that are described in um, really improving health outcomes for patients living with heart disease and um, diabetes. Um, and so I think Dr. Holliday did a really great job when he was talking about the social determinants of health, where we live, work, eat, play, and pray, where we're born, where we grow, and where we age. Um, those systems really contribute to all the inequities that we talked about today, from Tiara's story to Deacon Brown's story. Um, that also contributes to the lesser vaccination rates that we see in historically excluded communities and especially communities of color. Um, so we are a minute over and I really want to respect everyone's time. I know that our esteemed panelists have to get back to their days and I thank you all for joining us. Um, and thank you to the audience for participating today. This has meant a lot to our team. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You're thank welcome. you for having us. Thank have you a good so weekend, much. everyone. Have a good one. Bye. Bye-bye.